Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. I want to talk to you about Amazon, that's the company Amazon, the Amazon Foundation, and the website smile.amazon.com. Now most people I know, including me, regularly use Amazon for shopping. But did you know that Amazon has a foundation? And this foundation has set aside literally millions of dollars to help nonprofit organizations just like Fig Tree Ministries. Now to date, the Amazon Foundation has distributed close to $200 million to nonprofit organizations all around the world. So this is money that has already been set on the table for the taking. But to move that money from the Amazon Foundation to Fig Tree Ministries, which is a 501c3 nonprofit, requires action on your behalf. By using the website smile.amazon.com and designating Fig Tree Ministries as your nonprofit organization, the Amazon Foundation will make a donation to Fig Tree on your behalf based on your shopping. So make sure you're taking full advantage of the money that Amazon has already made available. Now you'll find a link below the video in the description section that's specifically for Fig Tree Ministries. And once you set your nonprofit organization, make sure you only shop using smile.amazon.com for your shopping to count towards a donation. Now together by doing this, we'll make sure that money from the Amazon Foundation is going to build the kingdom of God. So don't leave money on the table. Shop at smile.amazon.com and designate Fig Tree Ministries San Diego as your ministry. And then just go shopping. Now enjoy today's lesson. All right, so last week, last week we started down this path of looking at the parable called The Rich Man and Lazarus. And it takes a bit of digesting. So hopefully over the course of this week, you were able to digest it a little bit or even read over it. I've found that as I've read over this multiple times, now I'm, I'm thinking about it a lot more than you guys are, because I have to put all, I have to put together the teaching, hopefully in a, in a cohesive order. But um, boy, every time I go back and pass over it, it's like something else comes up at me. And that's just a really cool thing about scripture, of course, is the more we read it, there's a uniqueness to it that we interact with Scripture in a way that we don't interact with other writings. And every time you interact with Scripture, there's something about you as a, as a human being that can see deeper inside of it. We call that revelation, but it's just a cool thing to see. So um, hopefully, if you, and if you, don't, if you didn't get to do that this week, go back and read over it again, because when you start to see these details emerge— it paints a clearer picture of what Jesus has going on. Okay, so it's in Luke 16, 19 to 31. We'll read over it again later after we review and add a couple things. So if you want to turn there, you can have your Bible open to it. So what I'd like to do is just do a very quick review. This is a quick review of last week. It helps us set the stage to hear the message that Jesus is portraying. So. The first thing to notice is that it's a, it's a parable. We talked last week that there's a 
debate that goes on. Uh, there's a debate happening about whether this is a parable or not. And we're treating it like a parable. All the scholars that I've read call it a parable. But I just want you to know, if in case you bump into somebody or you yourself have always read it not as a parable, that debate is out there. And the two main reasons why they don't call it a parable is, first of all, there's no introduction. Often Luke or Mark or Matthew will, will introduce the parable by saying, and Jesus told them a parable. So you know it's coming. That's the first one. Second is that there's a name involved, Lazarus. And scholars say, well, typically there's not a name inside of a parable. So that's probably the main reason people don't, will say it's not a parable. But then again, there's three names going on here. There's, there's Lazarus, there's Abraham, and there's Moses. And of course, Abraham and Moses are from the Old Testament. But as we, we ended on last week, that name Lazarus can be connected to Abraham. And so it's not simply a random name that shows up in the text. It's a name that fits. And, but that's the reason why people think that it's, or would say, it's not a parable. All right, the second thing we looked at is that there's two common themes. And when I say common, it's not common to us. It's common to the first century. So the cultures surrounding Israel in the first century, including the Jewish culture, have uh, stories that float around. And you get many common stories. And so this is a common theme. Jesus is using the framework of a common story to send a message. And what we see is a role reversal, rich to poor. Now that's still common today. People love the idea that one day those who are wealthy and don't suffer in this life will somehow pay for it, and those who have suffered will get rewarded. That's, we still see that, even in our political discourse today, is some kind of role reversal. There's also the idea of a message from beyond the grave, and I think that just goes to the human compulsion to want to know what's beyond this life. And what we see in these messages from beyond the grave is usually a warning, like, yep, here it comes, you better change your way. So you're trying to get someone to repent and change. So if the message comes back to a rich person, it's, hey, pay attention to your wealth. Now, that's first century. That The difficulty for us is, you know, we don't study the literature of from the first century in, in the Mediterranean. We just don't do that. So we don't even know that these things exist. But of course, scholars, they spend their whole life reading those things. Now, this is still a common story today. So we still have this idea. And as I mentioned last week, one example of that is a very common story that has been passed on for years and everybody loves it called the Christmas Carol. That's a role reversal. You have a rich person who's miserly with his wealth. That's Scrooge. He's not taking care of the poor. Then he gets visited from beyond the grave by Jacob Marley. And the warning is, you better start using your wealth properly. And, of course, we love the story because in the end, he's redeemed. But, you know, every time you watch the story, you want Scrooge to act differently. It doesn't matter how many times you watch it. You know the end of the story. You still get caught up in the story and you want Scrooge to be nice to people and it just drives you nuts. So, it's a great... That's the power of storytelling, but... 
Anyway, so we have that in our own world today. So many things have not changed. All right, so that's why they would call it a parable. Now, if it's a parable, and I believe it is, what are we, what's a parable? We need to know the characteristics so that as we read it, we say, aha, I know what's going on because all parables share similar characteristics. So in this case, and this is how Jesus uses parables, he's always telling a story. And the story is just like the Scrooge story. It draws you in. It makes you part of the action. It causes you to analyze the characters and then how am I like that? How am I a Scrooge? Stories pick you up, right? And as I mentioned last week, a story is a way to take the teaching with you. Now, the details of the story enhance the message, right? So it's not a real story that Jesus is telling. He includes details, and those details are like, um, you know, like a, uh, an arrow has the fletching on the back. The fletching is the the little feathers that make the arrow fly straight. So he adds all these details, like fletching on an arrow, that causes his point to go straight to where he wants it to go. That's what we looked at that last week. We'll review them this week. It carries a truth, and it's a very powerful way to carry a truth. And then what Jesus does very often is he'll add a twist. He'll add a shock to the message. And so something that kind of wakes up his audience to say, ah, I know what he's talking about. So, and of course, he does that on just about every parable. It's just a matter of us sifting through that. We're not used to somebody speaking in parables to us. Okay, so that's part of what a parable is, and that's what we have to look, what we looked at last week, we'll look at it again today, is where are all these details that convey a message? Now, the second thing with parables is... Jesus is a first-century rabbi, Jewish rabbi. He's going to rely on his Old Testament for data. So the moment there's a detail, you, you first stop. You know, as a Westerner, when we read our Bible, the first thing we consult is our brain. Let me think about that one for a minute. That's not the way a, a, a Jewish audience, if a rabbi is speaking and he puts a detail in, you say, where is it in the text? What's he quoting? What's he alluding to? And that helps you pull out because they're all pulling from a common well. Anyways, he's going to pull from the Old Testament. The second one that he pulls from that is, again, difficult for us modern Westerners is the culture that everybody lives in, right? So if I told a parable today, I would have to include cultural references that all of you would say, aha, I know what he's talking about, or at least come close to it. You would know I'm referring to something. Okay, so that's just parable, and I know I did that real fast. That's a review from last week. But Jesus is going to do all of this in this parable. So I mentioned, I gave you last week the answer to the parable. He's directing this at the priests. Or, because priests are inside the tribe of Levi, and the Levites were also Sadducees, you could say Levites. But as we'll see today, oh man, it's going right at a priest, and we can probably figure out which priest he's going after. So it's the priests. This parable is talking about God's justice, right? That God's justice isn't just in this world. Because life extends on and God extends beyond this world, there it, the justice will continue. So your actions in this world matter. 
Things don't just go away when you die. You take them with you. The third one is that how you use wealth and power. So if the priests had consolidated power and wealth in Jerusalem off the backs of the normal people, well, you know Jesus is not going to be happy with that. So there's, that's conveying a very powerful message. Now, that was the answer, that it's the priests. How did we figure out that it was the priests? This is all from last week. Still review. The first thing we notice right off the bat, he gives us a detail. So Jesus in Luke 16, verse 1, he starts a parable by saying there was a rich man, but he doesn't tell you anything about the dressing, right? How he dressed. This one, he says, there's a rich man who dressed in, fine, in purple and fine linen. And bingo, you know exactly where that's coming from because we all know our Old Testament. And we say, he's talking priestly garments. We also know, as I just said, the priests were wealthy in Jesus' day. So if someone's a rich person and wearing fine purple and fine linen, well, you're going right at the priests. And the final one was all of his theological issues that Jesus is dealing with have to do with the Sadducee sect. And this is something, again, we need to raise our awareness of the differences within Judaism of, of the belief systems. The Sadducee sect was the priests and the Levites. John the Baptist was born in, in to be a Sadducee sect, but he didn't go along with that. His father, Zechariah, was a priest. So he would automatically go into the Sadducees unless you choose to not go in that direction. So, Sadducees. Everything Jesus talks about is referencing their theological thinking. So, for instance, Within the, th the, the first one, we all know this, within the Sadducees, they said there's no resurrection. So Jesus creates a story where the rich guy, who's the priest, is now asking for someone to be resurrected because, lo and behold, there is an afterlife, right? It's like you, you, set, you get to heaven and, whoa, I wasn't expecting there to still, you know, God's justice to continue on. And now he's realizing, you know, he wants someone to go back and warn his family. The Sadducees said, look, we think that God's justice all happens in, the, in this lifetime. So if you're suffering, it's because you must have done something wrong. That's Job's friends, right? Hey, Job, you're suffering. You must have done something. They can't figure out that he's just, that people suffer with, and still in, be in favor with God. Jesus addresses that in this parable. And then the final one is that the Sadducees see that Oh, that the Torah, only uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy is God's words. And of course, the Pharisees and others said, no, it's everything encompasses God's words, even the prophets. And so we're going to rely on those prophets as well. And that becomes, you know, a bone of contention as you're trying to interpret things like the resurrection that they say doesn't show up in the Torah. Okay, so that's that's the Sadducee sect. And if you read over this parable, as we will today, every, all the detail of the conversation that's happening between Abraham and the rich man is addressing these beliefs. Okay, that was fast review, just to, to warm our brains up. Last week, we ended with the character of Lazarus. And as I mentioned, the the number one argument for why it's not a parable is because there's a name mentioned. 
But if we can connect that name to Abraham, then it starts to make sense that this would be included in a story. Now, the difficulty is, is we, Lazarus is a Greek name in the first century. And I mentioned last week, there's a second temple period scholar named Tal Ilan, and she wrote a book about, the lex, it's a lexicon of names from like 300 BC to 200 AD. You can find it on Amazon. So she mentions that this name Lazarus is a Greek derivative of the name Eleazar. Ah, now we can start going back to our Old Testament, because if Lazarus is a derivative of Eleazar, well, Eleazar is Abraham's servant. So there's a whole dialogue we'll look at in a minute that happens in Genesis concerning Eleazar. So you can connect this name, Lazarus, with Abraham. And it comes out of Genesis. So if you want, you can turn to Genesis 15 real quick. We're just going to look at the first four verses. But this tells the story, or at least shows us what was happening between Abraham and God and the servant Eleazar. This is the, this chapter 15 of Genesis, this is where God's going to make a covenant with Abraham. Such an important chapter. But the beginning, ah, there's, so, there's so many details in this parable. One of the details is Abraham talks to God. He, he challenges God, and we notice that in the, in the uh, parable, the, the, um, you have Father Abraham, and the rich man is constantly challenging him, almost in the same way. So watch how, watch how Abraham challenges God. So it starts out, verse, or chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. I'm going to give you an inheritance. Now. If God said that to us, we would just say, thank you, thank you, thank you. But that's not what Abraham does. But Abraham says, Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? So that his first response isn't to say thank you. His response is to say, I don't have any kids. And then he says this, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. So you have someone not of the family uh, that would be a Jewish family, Father Abraham that will inherit the blessings of Father Abraham. So, and Abraham said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now God, of course, responds and says, No, no, no. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who's your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Now, right, if this, this whole discussion of inheritance with Eleazar that we can connect to Lazarus, now you can see how Jesus is twisting this parable to say, see, you, you priests think that just because you're sons of Abraham that you automatically get the inheritance. I tell you no. God can just as easily give it to the Gentile over there who was his servant. And that, there's so many different ways that Jesus says that. Don't get arrogant thinking that you can do anything and, and God will still bless you. Is kind of the point. So the whole discussion there in Genesis is an inheritance. And that's exactly what's going on in the parable. Is even if you're a priest, you have to use your wealth and power and authority properly. Or you can be set outside the kingdom. So don't get arrogant. Arrogance, of course, is not something that God 
nor Jesus gets ha- is happy about. Okay, so Lazarus. So we know we can take that person and say, now we can connect it to Abraham. And then in the parable, we connect Lazarus with Abraham's bosom. Now, we have to take a look at this phrase. How did we get to this phrase, Abraham's bosom? Because by Jesus' day, this phrase carries rich meaning. So the, the phrase itself is a picture of the blessings of the afterlife. They picture it as a banquet. So I know the NLT translation says there's a heavenly banquet. They're actually telling you what the translation is. So this phrase developed over a, the 500 years leading up to Jesus. And in Jesus' day, the way you described the, the age to come that we would call heaven is a, is a banquet. And Abraham's bosom is going to be associated with the comfort and the blessings of that banquet. Now, where does that Abraham's bosom come from? Or where, how do we get this idea of banquet and Abraham? Well, let's walk through it because this is an important concept, first century, to understand our Bible. So if you have your Bible, turn, if you would, to Isaiah 25, and we're going to read verses 6 through 8. So Isaiah 25 is going to be where we set this picture that a banquet is going to happen sometime in the age to come. So verse 6 starts like this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Now, of course, this mountain, the mountain of the Lord, is Jerusalem. The Lord's going to prepare a banquet of aged wine, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. So here you have a banquet. And notice who's invited to the banquet. It's all peoples. The whole world is going to be invited to this banquet that God is going to establish at the end of time. So Isaiah goes on, verse 6. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 7. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. So whatever the barrier is that keeps us from seeing the reality of God is taken away. The shroud is gone. The sheet that covers up is gone. All the nations see God for who he is and will go to worship God. He will swallow up death forever. Now, that's clearly not happening in this lifetime. It's happening in the next lifetime. So he'll swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all the faces. You might remember that one from Revelation, where it says Jesus is going to wipe away all the tears. He will remove the people's shame, that says disgrace, but shame from all the earth. So, very powerful image that there's going to be something beyond this life that's going to look like a heavenly banquet, where all the people of the world, all the nations are going to come to worship God. Now, watch how they take this Isaiah and move it forward through time, and it gets developed into what is called a heavenly banquet, banquet, also referred to as the Messianic banquet. That's the Last Supper. So the heavenly banquet. If Judaism is the family, then who's the eldest within Judaism? Who's the father? 
Well, it's Abraham. So at, um, at an ancient Near East banquet, the eldest is going to be the guest of honor. In fact, if you go to a Passover meal today, if it's in a home, the eldest would be the guest of, the, the guest of honor. So if the eldest is Abraham, then he's going to be hosting as the guest of honor this banquet, is, is the imagery. Okay, now turn forward in your Bible to Matthew, because I want to show you there's two places where this pops up in your Bible. So Matthew 8, 11 and 12. Now Matthew 8, what's interesting about this, and he's commenting on the faith of the Gentile. You get to this verse 11, and it says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table. So reclining, I'll show you that in a minute, is a ancient is a Middle Eastern way of having a banquet. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the kingdom of heaven. So even Jesus is painting this picture of a banquet where the elders, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, are going to be there to welcome you to the banquet. Then notice there's a role reversal here in, in verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds fun. So even that is the idea of a role reversal. You guys thought you were in. Nope. All the people from around the world are coming over. They're going to recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, this is key. I had to use the NASB because they use the word recline, and that's an important one as we look at what an ancient Near East banquet looks like. Okay, one more turn. Now turn to Luke because this is, we're getting closer to where we're going to look at the text, but Luke 13, and this is a reiteration of what I just read, so I'm going to go a little bit faster through it, but Luke 13, 28 to 30, basically says the same thing. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourself being thrown out. Now that's, he's speaking to the, to the Jews over there. And they will come from the east, the west, the north, the south, and they'll recline at the table in the kingdom of God. So again, the idea is this. You go from Isaiah, where there's an image of a heavenly banquet. Over the next 500 years, you have a development of the thought of what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be like a banquet. And Abraham, of course, is our guest of honor. So if Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham, ah, see, now we have to figure that one out. That's, that's heavenly feast language. I just want to show you that. Now, I'm going to give you one example just real quick. It comes from outside the Bible. This is on your sheet because you don't have it in your Bible. This comes from a document that the scholars call Four Maccabees, and CEB, that's the Common English Bible, that's a Catholic Bible. So Four Maccabees, is an, it's an outside-the-Bible writing, but it's from the first century, and I just want to show you, it also portrays this idea that if you died, if you suffered and died, but you were righteous, so if you died in this way, we remained righteous, but we suffered, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will give us a warm welcome. So we even find this idea, this language, outside of our Bible, but it's the same concept, some kind of heavenly, heavenly banquet.
Okay. There's our picture of a heavenly banquet. If Abraham is the guest of honor, then where is Lazarus sitting that he can sit against Abraham's bosom? Well, that makes Lazarus the second guest of honor. It's the second most important seat at the banquet table. Now, we have an issue of when we think about a banquet, when we think about the Last Supper, you guys picture da Vinci's painting, but that's not, it would look, well, every time a Western artist tries to portray a banquet from the first century, they always, it's almost like they can't do it, right? They make it too Western. This is closer to what a banquet would be like, where you recline, it's called a cline, or sometimes they're called triclinium, I'll show you a picture. What you do is you recline on your left side. So this guy right here at the blue, that's hard to see. He's reclining on his left side. He's facing, his back is to us. That's proper. The guy next to him right here, well, he's a little bit off. Because you, you eat with your right hand, you recline on your left hand. So you can see, even every time a Westerner paints these things, they, they have to have the people facing each other. But you would actually be facing each other's, the back of a head because the person in front of you is lying on their left side as well. And, well, let me, let me show you a triclinium. This, this is from Herod the Great's palace in Israel. This is the, it's called the Herodian, and he built this huge banquet room. And they call it a triclinium, tri, tricline, three-sided reclining banquet place. So you have a, a side here, you have a side in the back, you have a side going down here, the, the weight staff, you'd have little tables, the servants would bring the food, the middle is open. Now, what, ha what ended up happening was the Jews took over this palace and turned that into a synagogue, so that's kind of cool. They repurposed Herod's banquet room, but that's a triclinium, and if we looked at it from above, it would look something like this. This will make more, I'll give you something that'll make sense in a minute. So the, the, the head, the, the guest of honor, would be laying on his left side, and it's hard to depict in a, in a two-dimensional thing here, facing this direction. So he's laying on his left, eating with his right. That's the guest of honor. The next special guest, which would be Lazarus in this case, is laying with his back to the guest of honor. He's facing that direction too. And so what would happen is if this is Abraham laying, facing Lazarus, and Lazarus leans backward, where does he end up? He ends up inside Abraham's bosom. So that's how you get into the bosom. It means you're, you're at the special guest of, of seat at the, at the banquet. That's what's remarkable about Abraham's bosom. So you'd be in that special guest seat. Now, Here's where, here's where you'll, it'll start to make sense. Don't turn there. I'm just going to read it real fast. At the Last Supper, the Last Supper would be considered a type of messianic banquet. At the Last Supper, Jesus is the oldest. He's the guest of honor, 33 years old. Who's sitting right at his right-hand side? Who's in the, in the second guest of honor place? That's John. Because it says this, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples. So John is probably the youngest. At a Passover meal, the eldest is the guest of honor. At his right side is the youngest. 
So John's probably the youngest. And as John would lean backwards, because Peter says, hey, John, ask him who's going to betray him. John leans back into Jesus's chest, his bosom, and says, hey, Jesus, which one is it? So that tells you we know this, we can tell something about the seating. Anyways, it's important to note the moment they say Abraham's bosom, you, all of these associations come flooding in. It's the banquet in the age to come. It's the heavenly banquet. Abraham is the guest of honor. And if he's the guest of honor and Lazarus, now a Gentile, is being placed at that first, the, the second guest of honor seat, that's amazing. That's an amazing picture of what Jesus is doing. So there's a lot of associations with that idea of Abraham's bosom. Okay. Now what I want to do real quick is I just want to read through the text one more time, because now that we've seen all of these ideas, Sadducees, no resurrection, justice in the afterlife, who the priest is, who Lazarus is, I want you to see the text and watch how these details kind of start coming to the top, and then we'll, we'll finish on one final detail to help make some sense out of everything. Okay. So verse chapter 16 in Luke, verse 19 to 31, says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. So right there, we get the idea of the priest joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his wounds. Now that part about the dogs, we don't have time to go too deep into that, but it should be a contrast. It should be like a but. But even the dogs were more compassionate than the priest. That's, the dogs recognize that Lazarus is suffering. So there's a contrasting there, and we have to be able to pick that up. Verse 22, now the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. So now we know where he's at. He's at the heavenly banquet and he's seated in the, right next to the guest of honor, the best seat in the house. And the rich man died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. 24, and he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send to Lazarus so he may dip his tip so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things. That's that's what the Sadducees believe. Remember, that's a justice in this lifetime issue. And likewise, Lazarus bad things, but now he's being comforted, and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great, a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Final few verses. Then the man said, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. There's a detail. For I have five brothers. There's a detail. In order that, they, that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
But he said, No, Father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So notice Jesus is putting in the dialogue to say, Pay attention to all scripture. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, all scripture, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, now, as I've tried to pound into all of our discussion about parable, the moment you see details, father's house and five brothers, we have to ask why. Why is he putting that in there? And this is what we'll finish on is the five brothers. And we'll see how these is, this is pointing towards the priests once again. So I'm going to do two ways, two ways of approaching this just to show you. Because the moment Jesus says five, the mind of the person listening is going to start associating which detail is he putting in there, why. So I want to show you two things. Now, the first one I'm going to show you, I don't think is the main one, but I just want you to know it's there. So I, when, as I'm saying this and you think, well, that's, that's a stretch. I know, but it's an association. I don't think it's the main one. The priests are part of the Levites, yes? So if you're a priest, you're in the Levitical tribe. The Levites aren't necessarily priests, but they run the temple. Well, the, if you go back to Levi, the very first Levi that was born, how many brothers were there from his mother, Leah? Now, if you had to guess why I would be asking a question like this, you could probably come up with the right answer. But let's, let me show you. Because at one, on one level, he's talking about the priests. On another level, he's talking about the Levites, because they're from the same tribe. So if we look at Jacob, sorry, I'm taking you all the way back to Genesis. Don't turn there, but let me show you Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. We already know that. But he had them through four different mothers. So Rachel is the one that Jacob really loved. He, went, he wanted to marry Rachel. Laban tricks him, and he ends up marrying Leah. So now you've got two women involved. Then you have Bilhah and Zilpah. And all of these are giving birth to children uh, from Jacob, right? Well, let's see who gave birth to who. So Rachel, two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Bilhah, Dan and Naphtali. Zilpah. Gad and Asher. Now, math for Marines here. We can solve this equation, right? We got 12 sons. Six of them are on that side. And, okay, you might have to remove one shoe to come up with the answer, but look at Leah. And here's Levi right there. So how many brothers does Levi have? One, two, three, four, five. From that mother. Now, is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so, but it just happens to coincidentally fit. I mean, what are the odds that Levi has five brothers from his mother Leah? So, could that be an association? Sure, it could point to, to the Levites, but I don't think it's the main one. But I just wanted to show you that that's there. The moment you hear, because what you have to do is the moment you hear five brothers, think Old Testament. If you can't find it there, then where is it in the culture? So I put it on your sheet. You can look at it later, but Genesis 
35 is where they, out, where they outline all the kids. So if you want to go back and read it, it's Genesis 35, 23. But here's where I think, let me show you where I think Jesus is pointing and why this starts to make sense about the priests in, in his day. Now, this gets into not Old Testament, but cultural issues. There was a high priest named Annas. The high priest Annas became the high priest in 6 AD and then was deposed in either 14 or 15 AD. Now, after Annas was deposed, he didn't stop being in power. What he did was he maintained power over the high priest office through his sons. And by the way, one son-in-law. So in Jesus' day, Annas' son-in-law named Caiaphas was the high priest. Oh, well, let me show you something from Luke, because it, this will help explain why Luke names them both. So Caiaphas is the high priest, but really everybody knew behind the scenes, Annas is the one, he's the godfather of the family, pulling all the strings. So Annas and Caiaphas. Luke, don't turn there, no time, but let me just, Luke chapter 3 starts off like this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, Caesar, Tiberius Caesar took over in 14 AD to 15 AD. So 15 years later would be 29 to 30. So that's how we could date that. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, I'll spare you my reading of all these names here. Then go to verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, if there's only one high, high priesthood, why are they naming Annas and Caiaphas? Well, we have to know something then about what's going on. Annas is the father. His son-in-law, so Annas is still in power. He's wielding the power through his puppet son, who's the high priest. So here's a picture. This is a painting from the 1600s of Caiaphas challenging Jesus as at his trial. But if we look at this family, Annas and Caiaphas, right? Because Caiaphas is in power. Guess how many sons, or we could say how many brothers, Caiaphas has from Annas? Eleazar, Jonathan, Theophilus, Matthias, and another Annas. One, two, three, four, five brothers all of which will become high priest at some point. So imagine the parable is about a priest who's wealthy, who's ignoring the poor, and he says, oh, by the way, I have five brothers. What do you think as a first century audience? You know what's going on with the priesthood. You know their Annas is still in power and wielding it through his sons. How many brothers does Caiaphas have? Five. And who's the high priest at that moment? Caiaphas. So if there's one person, one person who this parable is pointing right at, it's right there. It's Caiaphas. Everybody would hear that as being Caiaphas. If Caiaphas heard the, the parable, he'd say he'd be upset, right? So 
it matches what was happening in the first century when he says, I have five brothers. That's cool. That's just a, that's such an amazing detail. And very pointed of what was happening at that time. So Caiaphas, you'll find, um, what's interesting is you do find Annas, he's, he's in the book of Acts, he shows up. Well, there he shows up in Luke, but it's just an interesting dynamic. The father's still pulling the strings of all the sons, but the fact that there's Caiaphas has five brothers, really, it's like the proverbial nail in the coffin that kind of closes, closes this whole thing out. Hopefully that helps you see now the cultural context of what's going on around it, because he's pointing it towards the priest. Every detail is pointed towards the priest. Lazarus equals Eleazar, the Gentile servant of Abraham, who now, according to Jesus, as the roles are reversed, inherits the blessings of the kingdom of God. He's the one who sits at the, the favored seat next to Abraham at the banquet. It's all about justice and, and resurrection, meaning this lifetime extends beyond what you think. Don't think that all of God's justice is meted out today. And then finally, if you had to point to one character, one character from Jesus' day, this parable's going right at Caiaphas, and he does that by mentioning the father's house and five brothers. And it's just a genius way to pull all that together. That's a lot, but hopefully that helps detail out more about the rich man and Lazarus, why people think it's a parable, and help you see what a powerful message it is as a, as a warning, particularly to those in power who are not wielding it correctly. So, okay, I'm going to stop the sharing. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.